open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Father, we're grateful for another Wednesday evening, and we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit upon us. We love you, and we're grateful for the chance, this opportunity that, that we have to sort of sit at your feet, to let you be our rabbi, and to hear from you. So do it, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. We're going to begin at verse 14 of Luke chapter 4, even though it sort of overlaps a little bit with where we ended last time, but it's a good transition point. Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus has just come out of this preparatory season of temptation that he had in the wilderness. And it wasn't as if that was the only temptation that Jesus ever faced in his ministry. No, but this was a special time of severe testing that he endured in the wilderness. And it was exemplified or most uh, uh, pointedly communicated to us in the three temptations that were described that we talked about last week. But Jesus succeeded in those temptations. He did not give in. He remained the spotless son of God. And now we come to verse 14 where we read, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Jesus came from this season of testing in the wilderness stronger than ever. And ladies and gentlemen, that's God's intention for a season of testing that he may allow in your life. Now let me be very clear what the Bible tells us about this, is that God never tempts us. God never solicits us to evil. He never entices us to commit evil acts. However, God may allow or even by the Spirit direct you into a place where you may face temptation by either the world, the flesh, or the devil. But God's intention in any season of temptation is to make you stronger. Is that the same thing that was fulfilled in Jesus might be fulfilled in you. Look at it again in verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Now, you know what else I think is wonderful about this? If you were to turn back to chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan. Well, now, already in verse 14, it seems like he's filled with the Holy Spirit again. Do you understand that our relationship with the Holy Spirit is to be ongoing. That we are, in the sort of more literal translation of the ancient Greek grammar in Ephesians chapter 5, we are to be continually being filled with the Spirit. And I think that's such an important principle, to continually be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, every once in a while, I'll meet people who had profound experiences with the Holy Spirit 30 years ago, and they'll say, oh, man, in 1976, what an experience I had with the Holy Spirit. Wow, he just blew the doors off my life. And I say, well, praise the Lord for that, brother. What's he been doing in the last 40 years? Do, do you get the idea there? It's to be an ongoing experience, and that's exactly what it was in the life of Jesus. So he returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. We spoke a little bit about Galilee just in this overlap that we had last time, how Galilee was a very populated region. Uh, Maybe one thing I didn't emphasize so much last time that you need to consider, Galilee was populated, but it was a mixed population. In other words, it was not only or predominantly 
Jewish people that lived there. There were also a lot of Gentile people that lived in Galilee. And usually it would be organized something like this. You would have a city or a village that was predominantly Jewish, and then you'd have a city or a village that was predominantly Gentile. And they would be spread out. And then you would have certain regions where most of the villages or cities were Gentile and other ones where they were mostly Jewish. So there was more interaction between Jews and Gentiles in Galilee than there was south of that in Judea. But nevertheless, they still sort of had their own villages and their own communities. And what did Jesus do? It's really interesting. Did you see that in verse 15? It says that he taught in their synagogues. Jesus's focus in his ministry was teaching. Ladies and gentlemen, it's very important for us to understand and gain some perspective on this. Because throughout the Gospel of Luke, matter of fact, if you read any one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you cannot help but be incredibly impressed by the miraculous ministry of Jesus. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He liberates the demon-possessed on and on and on again. I think God wants us to be impressed by the miraculous ministry of Jesus. I mean, I think that's very much in God's divine plan that we should look at this and say, wow, this was a man used of God. This was a man attested to be someone special by the power of God and the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through his life. I don't have any doubt about that at all. Nevertheless, it shouldn't make us lose sight of the fact that the primary ministry of Jesus was teaching and preaching. In other words, let me put it this way. Jesus was a teacher or preacher. I mean, you could use either phrase because sometimes it was more teaching. Perhaps more with his disciples it was teaching. Perhaps more with the multitudes it was preaching. But you understand. You'd pick whatever one you want. Jesus was primarily a preacher who also did miracles. The way some people have it in their head, they'd turn that around. They'd say he was primarily a miracle worker who taught a little bit on the side. No, I think if you take a look at Jesus' ministry in proper view, he's primarily a teacher who God used in a remarkable way to work miracles as well. So verse 15, he taught in their synagogues. And if you notice all this, so in verse 15, it says that he was being glorified by all. In other words, especially in this initial period of Jesus' Galilean ministry, he is very well received. He's not facing a lot of opposition from the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Now, verse 16. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Okay, you know the drill. Let the movie run in your head. Jesus walks into the synagogue where he went every Sabbath day as a boy. This was the Nazareth synagogue. Ladies and gentlemen, he grew up in this synagogue. This was his home turf. He went to, now, okay, I'm using modern churchy phrases on this, but you'll get, he went to Sunday school in that synagogue. He was in that community. Everybody knew him there. Now, Jesus did not live in Nazareth at this time. 
This was early in the time of his ministry. It was not long since the time that he lived in Nazareth. The, the, the people of the village knew him, and he probably worked as a carpenter or a builder for many of the people there. Well, there's just, he built my table. There's just, he put the room addition onto my house. There's just, he built this for me. I mean, since the connection, here's a man who lived and worked in that community for at least 15 years as a full-time professional, from the time that he would be an independent adult, which would be 16, 17 years old, to the time that he started his ministry, which was about 30. So, verse 17, it says, And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, can I translate this into our modern, you know, Christian environment? And I'm, okay, I'm doing violence to the text, but just a little bit. When I say, this shows us that Jesus was a church-going man. Isn't that sort of special? Do you see the words that indicate that he was a church-going man? And as his custom was, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, by the way, if there was anybody who knew the hypocrisy and the sin of the people in that synagogue, it was Jesus. He knew all about it. He could look at that person, oh, boy, I know what they're, oh, they're messed up. Oh, they didn't pay me for the table I built. Oh, this and this and this and this. Jesus could look at all of that. He knew it. He was very much in touch with it. Nevertheless, what was Jesus? He goes, I'm going to go there and fellowship with those people. I'm going to be amongst them. And, you know, I, I just, he says, there's something special and important about gathering together with other believers in a methodical, regular way just like you're doing here tonight. Now, look, I I don't want to go on and on about this point because obviously you're here, you get it, right? For for, for some reason, it's the people who are never here who need to hear this. And it is sort of startling how many people are genuinely born again yet deliberately disconnected from Christian fellowship. They just deliberately just, and maybe in their heart, in their experience, in their mind, They've had good reasons for doing that. Maybe they have, maybe the reasons are good, maybe the reasons are, I don't know, each individual case is different, is it not? But can I just say, you probably know some of those people. Can can you just start praying for them? That that they would come back to some connection with regular Christian fellowship? And, And maybe God would use you to just sort of be a lifeline to them, to draw them back into some kind of regular Christian fellowship. Again, I'm not saying this to you. You guys get it. You're here. But I just think there's something powerful and special about that. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus was a church-going man. Again, that does a little bit of violence to the text, but not too much, hopefully. Verse 18. Okay, well, no, I'm sorry. I passed it up already. What did he do when he went to the synagogue? I almost passed that up completely. He stood up to read. Now, in the synagogue service of that day, there was a there was a... Again, I'm, I'm using, I'm going to do this a lot tonight, so just deal with it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to impose churchy terms upon the synagogue service. And I know it's not exactly historical to do that. I'm only doing it by analogy. So l- let me just say this. The synagogue had a liturgy. 
It had an order of service. It had a way that they did things. There were certain prayers offered here and a certain hymn sung here or a psalm sung. There was a, a, a reading from this portion of the, uh, the Hebrew Scriptures and a reading from that portion of the Hebrew Scriptures. And at this time, they gave Jesus the honor of reading a portion, selecting and reading a portion of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, it's sort of an interesting debate among commentators. Some people wonder if this was part of the assigned reading for that particular day because there were assigned readings for each Sabbath day. But it also seems that in some synagogue services, there was also a time where the the speaker could choose whatever passage he wanted from the Hebrew Scriptures. So whether it was scheduled or whether it was chosen, Jesus opened up from a particular passage in Isaiah and he says, this is going to be the passage that I read. And as we read in these verses 16 and 17, he stood up, he received the book of the prophet, he read the text, and then he opened it up, and then he gave it back to the ruler of the synagogue, that would be the guy's title, and then he sat back down and got ready to teach. But here is what he was going to say. Verse 16, reading from the text in Isaiah. Here Isaiah is going to witness something to us. Here we go, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's most of Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. That's the text that Jesus chose to read right there in their midst. And it's really a wonderful text. It begins, as you read right there in verse 18, Jesus says, and you could just, can't you just imagine, I can see it in my mind's eye. I can see Jesus beaming as he read this passage in front of his home synagogue there in Nazareth. His face is almost glowing. Like I hope sometimes my face just gets a, a, a faint glimmer of that because it's just so wonderful to be reading something that's so powerful, so true, just so appropriate for the occasion. Jesus stands right there and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The the one speaking, the Isaiah passage, is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Jesus just smiles with his inward knowledge. This was written about me. I'm the guy. Have you ever had that just perfect connection sometime where you're reading your Bible or you're hearing somebody explain the Bible? That's just this perfect connection. The Spirit of God just almost seemed to take the text and highlight it in neon. It's for you. This is you, and this is just a perfect connection with Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? Verse 18, he has anointed me. Now, by the way, just to remind you, that whole name Messiah means anointed one. This passage from Isaiah chapter 61, most of verses 1 and 2, is all about the Messiah, the anointed one. He has anointed me to do what? Well, there's five things described. Number one, to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, I'll tell you, there are a lot of reasons why somebody might be poor. There are a lot of reasons, but I will tell you this. Sin makes people poor. Sin impoverishes people. Now, I'm not saying that's the only cause of poverty, but it's certainly one of them. And the Messiah brings good news to the poor. Secondly, verse 18 to heal the brokenhearted. Sin breaks hearts, and the Messiah has good news for the brokenhearted. Isn't that a wonderful thing? If your heart is broken, Jesus has come and bring ministry to you right here tonight. 
There's an old pastor, I don't know who he was, some famous pastor. It wasn't Spurgeon, but it was somebody else. And he said this. He said, listen, preach to broken hearts and you'll never lack for an audience. And that's how we are, aren't we? It's staggering to think how many hearts, despite the smiles and just the beautiful how are you, everything's great, and it's, hearts are broken. And he came to preach to the broken or to heal them. And then verse 8, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Sin makes people captive and enslaved. And the Messiah has come to set them free. Verse 18, and to bring recovery of sight to the blind. Sin blinds us. And the Messiah comes to heal our spiritual and our moral blindness. And then verse 18 again, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Sin oppresses its victims, and the Messiah comes to bring liberty to the oppressed. I mean, what a beautiful description of the work of the Messiah prophetically, back from Isaiah, and in the present with where Jesus was right then at that time in the synagogue at Nazareth. Now, what's also interesting there, and it is this sixth point, this last one, verse 19, he also says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, this seems to describe the Old Testament concept of the year of Jubilee. That's described in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 9 through 15 and following. And in the year of Jubilee, slaves were set free, debts were canceled, and things were set on a new start. And there are many Bible commentators and scholars who believe that this year that Jesus began his ministry was actually on the Jewish calendar a year of Jubilee. I don't know. I've seen different chronologies. I don't know if it can be exactly proven. But Jesus might be saying, hey, I don't care if it's an official year of Jubilee or not. I'm the Messiah. I'm bringing a year of Jubilee. This is the acceptable year of the Lord. See, can you just picture Jesus reading that in all of his strength, all of just the wonderful peace and glory and power of the Messiah. Such a beautiful scene right there in the synagogue at Nazareth. Verse 20, then he closed the book gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Now please notice the order of events. First it says that he closed the book and he sat down. Now, you and I might think, well, okay, he's not going to say anything. He sat down. No, no, you're not thinking of how they did things in the synagogue. When he sat down, that's when he was beginning to preach. Do you know how they did it back then? Back then, the teacher sat and all the hearers stood. How have we come to this? But I'll tell you what, if the teacher is sitting and the people are standing, that makes you think as a teacher, you think, I better, get, I better keep them interested. Because people are going to stand around for something that's boring. They'll just walk off. I mean, what, what are they going to do? It's, we, we sit you down to keep you comfortable, to keep you. But when Jesus sat, it was his way of saying, okay, now I'm getting ready to teach. And I don't know about you, but when I read the text there, the, the idea is that there's sort of like this, this tension building. Then all the eyes of those who are in the synagogue were fixed on him. It's like Jesus almost dramatically milking the moment. That's how it plays out in my head, right? He's just kind of quiet for a while, smiling. You know, and they're, What's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's he going to teach us about this text? And then finally, as all the expectation is on him, what does he say? He began to say to them, 
Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, please note, that was not his sermon. The sermon was not that one sentence, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. No, he went on to preach a message. What does it say in the text? It says right there in the text that he began to say to them. That was just the beginning of his words. And then they bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. So this was just the beginning of the message. But what a marvelous beginning. When Jesus gave that one particular sentence, what he was getting at was two basically things. First of all, he's answering the question, of whom did Isaiah write? Who is this person in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, preaching? Well, Jesus answered, me. Isn't that awesome? I, boy, I'm the guy. I'm the one. Not just, this has some application to my life, but I'm the one. I mean, Everybody's jaws. What? He's the Messiah? It's a very bold claim. Secondly, the question is, when will this come to pass? And Jesus said what? Today. Now's the time. I'm the Messiah, and I'm here, right here, right now. Today's the day. What a thrill. What, what just sort of an electric shock must have gone through that crowd. Matter of fact, it says so. Verse 22 They marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Jesus continued to speak on the theme that was just mentioned, and he did it with words that were literally full of grace. Everybody sensed the goodness and the grace of God in the announcement of the ministry of the Messiah that was now present. And he's just almost at at least for a period of time, people are just spellbound by the words of Jesus. Gracious words are coming out of his mouth. But then did you see what happened in verse 22? Then they started to murmur, and they said, what? Is this not Joseph's son? Now, the response of Jesus that's going to follow shows that this was not just an impartial comment. They went, now, who is this guy? Oh, yeah, I remember Joseph's son. No, they didn't say it just in an impartial, sort of even way. They said this in a very judgmental way. Huh. Well, we know this guy. Is this not Joseph's son? You see, after their initial amazement, they began to resent that someone who was so familiar to them, Joseph's son, could speak with such grace and claim to be the fulfillment of such remarkable promises. It was their way of saying this. Who do you think you are? Young man, we used to watch you when you were just a little boy. You played with our children. We rubbed shoulders with you. We've seen you in the synagogue on the Sabbath day for 25 years, for 30 years. We know you. And now you come along and say, I'm the Messiah? Now, to be honest, I have a little bit of sympathy for the people from Nazareth. This would have been difficult for them to accept. But yet, should they not have been persuaded by the gracious words that came out of his mouth? But you see, from what Jesus is going to say, starting at verse 23, there's something more to it. Look at what he says, starting at verse 23. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have heard, we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them 
to, uh, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. You see, the people objected, and Jesus was able to perceive something in their objection that needed to be rebuked. Verse 23, he points it out like this. They're saying this, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Now, Luke doesn't directly tell us that the people said this. Perhaps they did, and Jesus was just quoting their words back to them. Or it's just as likely that Jesus understood that this is where their hearts were. And basically, what they were saying was this. Come on, Jesus, we've heard you've done some really miraculous stuff in other places. Do it here. Give us the goodies. Do some tricks for us. We've heard you've done tricks in in Capernaum. Do them here for us. After all, are we not your own family? After all, are we not your hometown? Do it for the hometown crowd. And what did Jesus say in verse 24? He said, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Jesus understood that it's easy to doubt the power and the work of God among those who are the most familiar to us. It was easier for the people in Nazareth to doubt or to reject Jesus because he seemed so normal. He seemed so familiar to them. But Jesus warned them. He did this in verses 26 and 27. He said, listen, take the examples from the Old Testament, from Elijah and Elisha, that that, that to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, to the region of Sidon, and to none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Jesus' audience wanted special favors because they were his hometown. And you know what Jesus said? He said, no. Elijah went out of the hometown of Israel, so to speak, to do his miracles. And so did Elisha on another occasion. So no, just because you're part of the hometown crowd does not mean that you get a special miracle from the Messiah. Well, that was a pretty good rebuke from Jesus. Look at the reaction starting at verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him out to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Excuse me? I know I've preached some bad sermons before, but nobody's tried to kill me after a sermon. That's heavy, isn't it? Doesn't this show really the ungodly hatred and rage in these people's hearts. It wasn't something like this. Jesus, look, this is really hard for us to figure out. I don't know if I can figure it out, but would, would you just pray that God helps us to figure this out? It's not like that. It's literally murderous hatred against Jesus. From his own hometown crowd. This was an amazing response to what actually was a good sermon. They were angry to be told that something was wrong with them, that their request for a miracle was going to be denied. And he also implied that God loved and cared for the Gentiles. They didn't like that at all. So what did they do? They let him out of the city that they might throw him down over a cliff. Now, if you go to Nazareth today, outside of the city, there's a place called the Mount of Precipice. 
It's a place where we visited before on some of our Israel trips. And they say that this mountain across the valley from Nazareth is the place where they led Jesus out. I don't know if I really believe that because it's a pretty long trip. I mean, Jesus, I don't know, it just seems a little impractical, but whatever. What you need to understand is that when they led him that they might throw him down over a cliff, pushing someone off of a small cliff was oftentimes the prelude to stoning them. What they would often do is push them down a small cliff. And I mean, it might be small. It might be just as high as this platform is. But once you push them out, they were down on the ground. And when they were down on the ground, that's when you hurled stones at them until they were dead. You, you didn't stone a person standing up. They could try to run away. The important thing in stoning somebody was get them down on the ground, then pelt them with rocks. And oftentimes they'd push them off a small ledge to do that. That's probably what they wanted to do with Jesus. They wanted to kill him. So what did Jesus do? Look at it right there in verse 30. It says, then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And this is beautiful. I don't understand it, but it's beautiful. I don't know. And please, I'm, it's going to sound flippant. I don't mean it flippant. Like, all right, I'll just say it. It's like he did a Jedi mind trick on him or something. <laughs> and I don't mean that. I mean, it's just who knows what this looked like. It's almost like Jesus said, sorry, coming through. And everybody just watched him walk by. And what, shouldn't we? Aren't we trying to get? What, what about? What? And the next thing you know, he's gone. Now, you know what's so great about this? Didn't they ask to see a miracle? Here you go. And I bet you say, hey, you guys wanted a miracle. Well, here's one for you. Bye. And he just walks right out of their midst. Here's the miracle. I'm going to escape a murderous mob, namely you. And I'm going to get out of town. This was the miracle that he showed them. So he left Nazareth. Friends, before we start here onto verse 31, let me just say something very quickly by point of application. Isn't it easy sometimes for us not to be able to see an amazing work of God because we're too close to it? I, I experienced this for myself uh, when we went to Germany. And we saw the work that God was doing there at Calvary Chapel of Siegen, Germany. And let me tell you, I was blown away by what God was doing. Now, the people there at Calvary Chapel of Siegen, they understood that God was doing a work there. They, they understood. They weren't dumb. They, they, they understood that. But you know what? I found that so many of the people, and especially a lot of the leaders, they just didn't really see how profound of a work the Holy Spirit was doing there. And, and it was really good for me to come in from the outside and just kind of say, look, you guys, you guys are a little too close to see this with real accuracy, but God is doing a tremendous work among you that I haven't seen him do. Ever. It's not like it's the only place on earth. I didn't want to apply that. But this is just something special, unique that God is doing. And it taught me something that I hope I remember and I hope I can communicate it to you right now, that it is entirely possible to be so close to a work that you can't stand back and just say, wow, Lord, you're doing something incredible here. C can you just make it a prayer in your heart? Lord, guard me from that. Guard me from missing sometimes what's right in front of me because it seems so normal because I'm in touch with it every day because it seems so familiar because it's right around me. I think if we ask the Lord, he'll help preserve us from that. Okay, going on now, verse 31. 
Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. Now in the synagogue there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And when he cried out with a loud voice saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst and come out of him and did not hurt him, Then they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word this is, where with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. Now, once you notice, first of all, another characterization in general of Jesus' ministry, it's right there in verse 31 where it says, And he was teaching them on the Sabbaths. And then later on in verse 32, it says, they were astonished at his teaching for his word was with authority. Do you get the point there? They were blown away at the teaching ministry of Jesus because Jesus was going around from synagogue to synagogue on Sabbath to Sabbath. Again, emphasizing the fact that, to use it in our own modern day vernacular, he was a church-going man. But again, his primary ministry was teaching. But while he was doing this work, while he was teaching with authority, people were being astonished. And the authority of Jesus was demonstrated not only in the words that he spoke, but in the life that he lived. Ladies and that's a good prayer for me or for anybody who handles the word of God. I want to be able to teach with authority. And that's a very important thing, I think. I think it's an important thing to be confident in the Word of God and to understand the Word of God and to be able to teach the Word of God with appropriate authority. Nevertheless, I don't want the authority to be just with my words. I want to have a life that speaks of authority in Jesus. And that's what Jesus had. Jesus had not only authoritative words, but he had a life full of authority as exemplified in verse 33, where it describes a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. By the way, the terms unclean spirit, evil spirit, and demon all seem to be pretty much the same. They refer to evil powers of darkness that are the enemies of God and man. The New Testament tells us in passages like Ephesians chapter 6 that they are organized, that they are ranked, and that they are led, at least in some organizational way, by Satan himself. By the way, do do I need to point out to you that you and I, largely speaking, in our Christian life, we don't deal with Satan. I don't think any of us have had the the honor or dishonor, if you want to say, with actually dealing with Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. And I don't care how godly you are, how effective you are for the kingdom, Satan probably has bigger fish to fry than to directly deal with you or me. But he has demons, unclean spirits that are under his authority. And sometimes we say, well, Satan attacked me. And we're just speaking in shorthand. You understand that? That it probably wasn't Lucifer himself, but it was one of those demons who were under his authority. And when we say that we're attacked by these spiritual powers, this was a whole other thing. This man was possessed. This man had his will altered. This man could not do what James would later say in his that every believer can do. Every believer has a promise. Do you want to know what the promise is? Here we go. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise given to every believer. But this man was in some state that that promise wasn't good enough. 
He was held under the bondage for this demonic power, not being born again, not being regenerate by the Spirit of God. And the demons cried out from him, verse 34, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? And then they even said in verse 34, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But what did Jesus do, verse 35? He rebuked the evil spirit. He said, be quiet and come out of him. First of all, in those days, there were Jewish exorcists. And we even have writings of their method, uh, methodologies and techniques. And they're all filled with these, you know, it sounds like, um, you know, witches' potions and things like this. All these elaborate potions and things that you do and ceremonies and all this folder roll that you would do. Oftentimes in vain attempts to try to gain authority over a demonic spirit. What did Jesus do? He didn't do any of that nonsense. He just had authority, not only in the words that he taught, but in his life. And he could tell that demon, get out of him. Shut up and get out of him. And the demon did it, immediately responded to what David said. And people were amazed at the authority in his word that Jesus had, both in his word and his teaching and his spiritual living. Ladies and gentlemen, that's just flat out remarkable. Now, I need to make one other comment on here before we take a look at another miracle that Jesus did in verse 38. Please note, and you'll notice this throughout the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was not a demon hunter. He didn't flit around the Galilee area looking for demons that he could confront. Jesus carried on his work of preaching and teaching the kingdom of God, and when he encountered a demon, when one came in his way, oh, he dealt with it. (laughs) Jesus never backed down from that kind of fight. But nobody should think for a moment that Jesus was some kind of demon hunter. No, he didn't pursue them. He pursued the will of the Father for his life. And when any demon came, any kind of opposition, he just cleared it out of the way. But Jesus wasn't on some kind of, no, he just did what God's will was for his life and then uh, pushed away into the opposition that came by him. Verse 38. Now he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's home. But Simon's wife's mother was sick with a high fever And they made request of him concerning her. He stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served him. So what did Jesus do after this synagogue service? Can you imagine? There he is teaching the synagogue. He has a dramatic encounter with a demon-possessed man. He casts the demon out with authority. When the service is over, Jesus is talking with people. He does all the ministry he can there at the synagogue. Then he goes over to Simon's house. By the way, if you go to Capernaum today, one of the great biblical sites to go, you can go to a place where that synagogue stood. Now, the ruins are there from a synagogue that stood on the same site as that very same synagogue, but at a later time uh, in the third century, not in the first century. But you'll be standing on the very same place where Jesus preached at this synagogue. And then supposedly, right across from where that synagogue is, is the house where Peter was. Well, Jesus entered this house, which was nearby. He went in, and he ministered to Simon's wife, Peter, Simon Peter's wife's mother. Now, can I just say something very briefly, because time's getting away from us just a little bit. Peter was married. I'm not, I'm the first pope, according to some theological systems, was married. It's just fascinating. I'm not going to say anything more than that. Verse 39, he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And verse 39, it left her, and immediately she arose and served them. Now finishing up the chapter here, verse 40. Again, please picture this scene in your mind. It's beautiful. When the sun was setting, all those who had the sick were were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. 
And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying out and saying, You are the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, did not allow them to speak, for they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went to a deserted place. And the crowd sought him and came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. Isn't that powerful in verse 43? There Jesus doing this beautiful scene of ministry as the Sabbath sun is setting and people are free to travel because the Sabbath is over. This great multitude comes and with great compassion and energy, Jesus ministers to people one by one. And it's not the equivalent of a modern-day healing service line where Jesus sort of walks along the line, bam, bam, bam. But rather, you can just imagine Jesus very tenderly speaking to and praying with and ministering to each one. And people are healed and people are delivered from demonic oppression. It's just a beautiful, beautiful scene. And they want him to stay, but he says, no, I got to go. He says, verse 43, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. This is my message. And verse 44 ends the chapter with this idea. He was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. That was the clear emphasis of Jesus' work before his great work of atonement on the cross. He was preaching in the synagogues of Galilee. But ladies and gentlemen, do you see this? That Jesus' preaching was not just connected to the words that he spoke, but to the life and authority that he lived. And this is where I want to bring it to you as we close with this. I'm so grateful that you come and and are part of these Wednesday nights where we come and we study the Bible together and and, and we look at it together and and that you listen to these words that are spoken here on a Wednesday night. That's wonderful. And I believe that Jesus is here to come and speak to you through his word. But he's also here to demonstrate his authority in your life. Would you just open up your heart, open up your life and say, Jesus, would you take your authority in my life? What we don't want to be is a collection of people who hear the words of Jesus, but resist his authority in our life. There's a bondage in your life. Jesus wants to take authority over it. There's an impediment, an ailment, a thorn. Jesus wants to take authority over it. There's some unforgiveness. There's a stronghold. There's bitterness. Whatever it would be. Don't you see that it can be dangerous to just listen to Jesus' words while all the time resisting the authority that he would have in our life? Let's do both. It doesn't have to be an either-or proposition. But Father, that's my prayer for these blessed people of yours, for myself as well, Lord. Here we are, Jesus. We hear your word. We we respond to the authority of your word in teaching. We cherish it. But Lord, right now, in whatever way that's appropriate for us, we we just sort of, Lord, in this moment of silence, we bear our heart, we bear our soul before you. We say, Jesus, um, use your authority in in our life. I'm just going to be quiet for a moment and let the Lord speak to you about how we might want to do that. Jesus, as you heal that multitude one by one with tender focus on each individual, 
So I believe you're dealing with each individual here tonight with me. So, Lord, we yield our lives, our hearts to your authority. You're not just our teacher. You're our Lord. You're our God. We surrender before you now in Jesus' name. Amen.